As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Those are verses 15 to 22 of Psalm 103, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, January the 7th, 2021. Sorry. Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our look at the, the revelation of Jesus in the course of his life, which we'll be in for about the next six or seven weeks. Um, so beginning today, we're going to be in Isaiah 52, verses 3 to 6, in Revelation 2, 1 to 7, and in John 2, 1 to 11. Isaiah begins with, Thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. They were sold into um, captivity in Babylon, and they were sold for nothing. They received nothing for that. It was not. It, it's kind of an allusion to what happened with Joseph back in the day, right? Because he goes to uh, his brothers who throw him in the pit, and their plan is to sell him to Midianite traders who will then sell him into slavery in Egypt. And, and at least there, something was received. There, there was some value for that proposition, but here they're sold into slavery for nothing at all, and it's because of their sins that they've gone into, not slavery really, but captivity in Babylon. Um, they, they treated them well there most of the time. Um, they, were, they were given the opportunity to become Babylonians, and, and good little Babylonians, in fact, and they were encouraged to just let all that other stuff go and, and become good little Babylonians. And so here he says, you're, but you're going to be redeemed without money as well. I'm going to bring you back myself. Thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. And, and that's part of the problem and the reason that God, when he brings them back, I mean, he had a plan to bring them back because he knows all things and he knew how long they would be there. What he didn't reveal to them in the beginning was why, what would be the impetus for bringing them back, and it was because the... God had, had set boundaries around the punishment for his people for their sins, and then he had allowed these other nations to, to mete out that punishment on his behalf, but they went beyond the boundaries that he had set. And so then he redeems his people, and that's exactly what this is referring to. My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn, which was exactly what happened in, the, in Egypt. They went there to sojourn in the days of the famine, and then the Egyptians began to oppress them when they became too numerous for them. And here it's the same thing. And so he's mixing these two all at one time. My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. And so that's, that's exactly what happened in the Babylonian, in the Assyrian captivity, was is that they then, they went there sort of to sojourn during the period of time that God had established for them to be in uh, out of the land, exiled from the land, and, and yet while they were there, then they began to be oppressed. 
Now, therefore, what I have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. The rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. So God is announcing to his people that they will be delivered, they will be redeemed, and they will be brought back to the land, and he himself will do it because of the way that the rulers of Babylon have despised the name of the Lord and treated it as though it were nothing at all compared to their gods. And so he'll do to them what he did to the Egyptians. He will get glory over them. And we know that with, with Nebuchadnezzar, right? Because he has, he has struck down and he becomes like an animal for several years. And then his son messes up completely and is, loses his throne, loses his life because of that. There's no respect for the God of Israel. And again, like I said, there, there was respect for the God of Israel by certain groups of people within Babylon. Those were the Chaldeans who, had, who knew the truth about the power of God working through his servant Daniel in the gospel lesson today, on the third day, now this is the third day after they, he has called his disciples to himself, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So nowadays we, we make an invitation that says you can bring a plus one. I guess they were bringing a plus, he was bringing a plus 12. So they were all allowed to come to that wedding. They were all invited to join him in this. Now it's highly likely that, that the family would have known most of these men who come with Jesus because they too are from the Galilee. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. It's presumed that Mary is sort of a guest of honor at some level here, and she has an official role to play at the wedding. She was not the caterer exactly, but, it, but it's similar to that. She would, have ha- she would have had control over the servants, and we see that in the way that she instructs the servants here in a couple of seconds. So the wine ran out. Jesus' mother says to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, remember yesterday, or day before yesterday, actually, we looked at this whole idea of his hour not having come, and and it's it, here. It's for the beginning of the ministry, and so it, the he doesn't believe doesn't it doesn't realize. I guess is a better way to say it that the time has come. But Mary, I, I like to always when I read this, I like to think of Mary having like God gave her a little insight here that yet has because what happens is is she says what is this he says what does this have to do with me my hour hadn't come yet and she says to the servants do whatever he tells you so she knows that something's going to happen here irrespective of the conversation that they've just had and the things that jesus says mary knows that she knows that she knows that jesus is going to do something here and so she tells the servants do whatever he tells you to do and there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So you got these huge water jars there, and those things are because the, one of the, the most important things in Judaism at that time, in that rabbinic Judaism, first century, first temple, or second temple Judaism, was purification, that, that they were constantly concerned about defilement from everything. 
um, they, they wash their hands after meals because, well, there was salt at the meal, and, and a lot of salt for the region came from Sodom. And so if you use salt in your meal, and well, a portion of that could have come from salt in Sodom. So now I have to wash my hands to make sure that none of Sodom clings to me from what I've just eaten and touched. So there, there's this constant sort of OCD kind of thing going on that has to do with hand washing. It's it it's one of the biggest tractates in the Mishnah, actually, has to do with washing of hands. And so it, there's an obsessive kind of thing there because there's a concern about defilement constantly. There's a fear of, con, of defilement by contact with the world. And, and the belief is that you can sort of wash off that defilement so that you're not ritually impure and you'll be able to go to the synagogue, go to the temple, all those kinds of things. There was a fear of the world that part of this is part of the thing we don't, I think, necessarily see in the incarnation. What was was a complete misunderstanding of the world that existed, and it's partly exemplified in this whole idea of the hand washing. And it's because that, that there's a there's a there's a belief, I guess, that you could contact defilement. By, by almost any contact with the world. So Gentiles are impure. Anything a Gentile touched was impure. So there's this huge concern about defilement with the world. And so the fact that, that God came into this world and wasn't defiled by contact with the world, it tells us something different about the world and something different about other people than was understood at the time Jesus came into the world. And so he, he tells us his life, his willingness to come and live among us who are defiled, but not by contact with the world, but by our own sin, tells us something about the way that we should live in the world and the way that we should think about the world. And it's part of what Paul's argument has to do, for instance, in Corinthians, when he writes there about about eating food sacrificed to idols, and what he's saying is, you you live in a veritable idol factory, and and so a lot of the meat and things that you would buy may well have been sacrificed to an idol by the person who prepared it, but that's nothing at the end of the day. You know, if you tried to keep yourself away from all that stuff, you'd starve to death. And so that Jesus's incarnation tells us how to think differently about the world as well, and how to, and that we should worry less about that sort of that, that contact um, tracing, I guess, you know, sort of in the, in the parlance of the day. And, and something else, he says, fill those jars with water. And so the servants filled them right to the brim. So there's, there, there's no room for something else to be poured in there to adulterate the water. <clears throat> he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. I mean, Mary told them that they had to do whatever Jesus told them to do. The first thing that he tells them to do to fill up the water jars makes, you know, okay, Sure, we don't understand the Jewish purification rites. We just know that y'all have got this OCD thing going with with purification. So uh, they were happy to do that. But now he asks them to draw some of the water out of those jars and take it to the master of the feast. And it's like, uh, hmm, that's not maybe—but they did it, right? I mean, so they take it to the master of the feast. And when he tastes the water, now become wine, and didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people had drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
because you know what most people would do is they would you know they would take the the premium stuff and put it out first and then when people had drunk some and their taste buds were a little bit dull they bring out the shelf brand stuff right so here here you go here's the cheap stuff because you don't know the difference anymore your palate it uh, can't even discern this any longer and this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him now, what did they believe is an open question in John's Gospel, always. What, what level of belief do they have? They knew that he could do this thing. They knew that he did this magic trick, I guess, at some level, um, that, that he did, was able to do things. And, and there's a similarity there, right, between um, Moses turning the Nile to blood with this miracle. It's a similar kind of miracle, um, taking water and turning it into something else. There are, there's another group of people <laughs> who had to have believed something too, and that would have been the servants who take this water, cum wine, to the master of the feast. They had to be absolutely astonished when, when the master of the feast said what he said, because all they did was take this, quote, water to the master of the feast, and then now he pronounces, this is great wine, so the, the servants knew that Jesus had done something pretty extraordinary here as well, because this could have been a really bad moment for them, right? If they bring this water to the master of the feast and say, here, try this. Um, but no, Jesus had done this incredible miracle. <clears throat> in the Revelation passage, we're back in the letters to the churches. Today it's in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And that's the one that, that John said that he saw was the one with the seven stars in his hand walking among the seven golden lampstands. So we know that this is Jesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've found them to be false. You know the Word of God. You don't have any patience for evil. You know the Word of God well enough to test the spirits when somebody tells you something. You know whether they're false or true, and you will not have any truck with those who are false. And, and, and you're working hard, and you're patiently enduring. They lived in a very pagan land. It, where if Ephesus was, it was uh, like a temple of Artemis was there, right? Because we remember that from, from Acts when Paul is there and um, the coppersmith decides, Paul's wrecking our business in idols and we need to do something about this. And so he whips up the other artisans there and now makes this a religious argument rather than a commercial argument because a commercial argument's not going to go very far. So now it's got to be, nope, he, it's not that he's ruining our business. Nope, it's that he is denigrating our goddess, so there was, a, there was a temple to Artemis there, and it was a huge temple. And so what, what Paul is saying is, is that I know, or not Paul, what Jesus is saying here is that I know you live in a place where it's not easy to be a follower of me, but you've patiently endured and you've worked, and you have kept yourself from following after false prophets and false apostles, and they're to be admired for that. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at the first. And how easy that can become 
for the church and for Christians generally is is that now we've put our noses to the grindstone and the work is the most important thing, the things that we do. But also when you're under persecution and you're under duress from within or without, it's easy to, to lose sight of why we were doing these things. Now they're just good works. They're just good things that we do, but they're not coupled any longer with love. And so it, love has got to always be the motivation, but it's, it's, it's difficult to maintain that, and it's because of something I've said multiple times. One of, the, one of the things that I regret more than anything else in my ministry, uh, particularly here in Asheville, was is that too often when there was any kind of opposition and there was pushback on anything— in, most of the time when I'm talking about inside the church. But, but one of the, the biggest mistakes that I made was I fought the battle the wrong way. I, I, I ended up fighting the person or the people rather than fighting what was actually going on. I should have been on my knees fighting that battle. Instead, I'm arguing and fussing and fighting with people. And that was a mistake because love went out the window. Paul says, you know, you don't fight against flesh and blood but it's principalities and powers. And when we fight the right battle, then we can continue to work in love, even when those people are opposing us. That We're able to continue to, to work in love. And it's exactly what Jesus had commanded, is to love your enemies. So whatever that is, you, you love people. You know, that, that's the commandment. And so that's the issue here, is, is that they've become, they've become so patiently enduring, and they've been working hard, and they've discerned false spirits and all that kind of stuff, and the problem then becomes that that they've gotten so task-oriented that they've forgotten why they do it, and they've forgotten to do it in love, and it's the thing that Jesus never forgot, and that's the reason that from the cross he plays, prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He continued to love and persevere while he worked and while he did the things that he did. And so he says, you've abandoned the love you've had at the first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at the first. He's not saying necessarily go back and, and do the stuff you were doing then, stop doing the things you're doing now. No, he, do them that way. Do them with love. And if not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And I've said this before, I said it not too long ago in reflecting on these same lessons. The, the Nicolaitans were those who, who said that you could do whatever you wanted to with the body. They, were, uh, they had become people who, who said sex, those kinds of things don't really matter. So it's open season to do you know whatever you like because ultimately your soul is not touched by that. That's only a bodily thing. And again, it goes back to the point I was trying to make with Jesus coming into the world. They're saying the opposite of that. Like you can't be defiled by contact with the world, and, and you can't be con- defiled by sin because the sin only affects the body. It doesn't affect the soul, and the soul is the immortal and eternal thing there, and so you can do whatever you want. You have freedom. No, actually, you have license, was what they were saying. And so we've got to balance the freedom that we have in Christ against the reality of sin, and that our bodies themselves matter. So we've got to live in the world without being immersed in the world and being like the world. But, but we are to live freely in the world as disciples of Christ. That's the way we live in the world. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So you'll have eternal life if you persevere and conquer by returning to the works you did at first, which means to return to the love which impelled those works. And that's the way we're called to live in this world. We're called to love people in this world, but not to love the world itself. We're to appreciate it because it's God's good creation. We're to mourn over its fallen state because of sin, but we're to serve him, to love him, by serving and loving others in our works.